late third century to escape increasing persecution by the Roman Empire, some Christians started to withdraw into the desert. And this movement was pioneered by one known as Anthony the Great, who later became one of the Desert Fathers. And Anthony moved into the deserts of Egypt, seeking solitude and living an austere life. And he wanted to be alone, but he quickly gained a large following. They had come to believe that the way to God was through asceticism. The desire for evil within our flesh is evident. The devil plays on this. And so they were led to believe that by depriving the body of all comforts, they might tame the flesh and become pure. So they denied their bodies food, comfort, and sleep. It wouldn't be out of the ordinary to find an ascetic living on top of a pillar in the wilderness for days without food in the elements. They believed that by asceticism, they could become spiritually pure and hear the voice of God. These desert dwellers became the foundation of Christian monasticism. They started clumping together in monasteries, and monks and nuns today descend from this tradition, still living an austere life to try and see God. However, such Christian ascetics were, and still are, quite misguided. This whole movement originated from a serious misunderstanding of Scripture. One of the main verses from which their practices stem is, Matthew 5.48, where Christ tells us, he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And they took that as a challenge. Anthony the Great, who started this movement, he heard a sermon that one could attain perfection by selling all of your possessions, giving it to the poor, and living alone. He saw that as challenge accepted. And, And to take it a step further, he went off to find perfection by living in seclusion in the desert. Now, look, there's some wisdom to be had in avoiding temptation and denying the flesh, not being ensnared by the world. But these monks were doing all they were doing for the wrong reasons. They knew they were sinners. They knew they, they didn't love God like they should. But they believed that by enough self-control and discipline and deprivation, they could, they could get there. They could overcome the flesh and become pure. But unfortunately, it, it doesn't work that way, at least not according to Scripture. You can't clean your heart by scrubbing your hands. No matter how hard you scrub your hands, it won't do anything to your heart. doesn't matter how many rules you follow. doesn't matter what you do to your body. It will never result in a clean heart. And that's our big problem. Our biggest problem is not the world we live in or the devil around us. It's the sin that resides within us in our own heart. Until that problem is dealt with, we'll never be pure. It's like a spoiled well. All the water you draw from it is defiled. Until the source is made pure, it, it will never be good. And so it is with us. But the problem is we don't have the power to cleanse ourselves. And no amount of external effort we do will cleanse the heart. We are already fallen, depraved, defiled. We're already spoiled, unclean, impure on the inside before God. And retreating to a monastery in the desert might help avoiding some of the temptation of the world, but you realize like you're taking your heart with you to the desert. It's not done anything to change the problem inside of you. What can we do? Can you perform spiritual heart surgery on yourself? There's nothing we can do, but thankfully God can. There is a way the heart can be made pure. There is a way your heart can be reborn, resurrected, and made new within you. How? Well, we're going to unearth that this morning and much more 
as we reflect on our text in Matthew chapter 5. So open your Bibles there as we, we return to this passage and we give our attention this morning to the sixth beatitude. This is where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you're new, we, we've been going through these Beatitudes, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount for, for some time now. We're nearing the end, but this sixth one stands out. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And I think it really stands out in the profound promise it makes. These ones are blessed, for they shall see God. No one can see God. This has been the desire of the devout in every age, to see God, to know him, to, to walk with him. But you can't. You and I are, are unholy. We're impure. God, God won't let you see him. His glory is veiled to us. But the promise here from Christ is that some will be granted that the greatest privilege of, of seeing God. Who? The pure in heart. They and they alone will see God. This really is an amazing promise, but we wonder, what does it really entail? What is it? What does it really mean? What is this heart purity? How do you get it? Is this a challenge to retreat into the desert and find perfection by our efforts? And if not, how, how do we make ourselves pure? How can one be made pure in heart? In all the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is pronouncing blessing on his disciples. And it's been our aim to just go through them one by one and, and just try and appreciate them for all their worth. And so, so far, I think it's been a rich, edifying, profitable time. We want that to continue with this sixth beatitude. And it holds out a great promise, but questions abound that need answering. And so we're going to do that this morning together. So far, we've covered the first five beatitudes where we've found, in short, blessed are the poor, blessed are the grieving, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the merciful. And today we carry on to number six, which we might say, blessed are... The pure. Blessed are the pure. Just hone in on verse 8. Read it with me. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, right away, we should reiterate, these Beatitudes are all spiritual characteristics. This should be increasingly obvious by now. I mean, back in verse 3, Jesus did not just say, Blessed are the poor. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 6, he doesn't just bless the hungry. He's really blessing those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And here in verse 8, it's not just blessed are the pure. This is blessed are the pure in heart. This is not ritual purity. This is spiritual purity. These are spiritual characteristics. And and it's sad how many throughout the ages, like the monastics, have have missed what should be glaringly obvious. They've come to believe that if you just literally make yourself poor, hungry, and pure by cutting out the world, you will be blessed. But that's not it. That's not what Christ is saying. That's not the way to God. They're, they're missing the point. I mean, tragically, you could spend your whole life locked away in a tower and be no closer to God. Such a person might actually be cursed, not blessed. We don't want to be deceived, and that comes by rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. And so we, we just want to understand, what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God? And we're going to do some study to, to find that out. Just kind of mimic our approach from last week. I'm going to give you just five points to attach our thoughts to as we work way through this and, and try and figure it out. So let's start with number one, the place of purity. 
the place of purity. This sixth beatitude centers on purity, but it has a place, namely the heart. Christ doesn't say, blessed are the pure in hands, blessed are the pure in eyes, blessed are the pure in, in thought, although that would all be true. But this ultimate blessing belongs to the pure in heart. And so we, we first wonder, what, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Now let's start with the heart. I mean, physically, I think we all know the heart is one of our most remarkable organs. I mean, just think, we have a living pump in our chest that never stops pushing blood all throughout our bodies. Your heart beats about 100,000 times a day. It pumps 2,000 gallons of blood a day. In a lifetime, that will be 1 million barrels of blood. And your heart works harder than a sprinter's leg muscles sprinting, just that your heart never stops. It never gets a rest. There's no end of the sprint while you're alive. It just always works. And so it's understandable that we think of the heart as the driving life force of our body. And spiritually, it's not that far off. Our, our spiritual heart, so to speak, is the driving life force of our souls. This is how the scriptures speak of the heart in a figurative sense. It's the center of who you are. It is mission control center for you. What you think, what you do, who you are, it stems from your, your inner person. That is the heart. It represents who you are on the inside. It's the essence of your inner person, out of which comes your thoughts, your actions, your words. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, your actions, your will, it all stems from your heart, this inner person. Yeah, we're not talking about the organ in your chest, this your inner spirit. Now, let's think about the word pure from verse 8. It says, blessed are the pure in heart. This is the word katharos in Greek, from which we get the word cathartic, which speaks of purging. The Greek term was originally used to describe of refining metals. You find some, some ore in the ground, and it has a lot of metal in it, but it has a lot of rock and impurity. You just want the metal. You need to make it pure. So you put it in the fire, you heat it up. The impurities remain solid. You skim those off and what's left is pure metal. So you can probably see where this is going, pure in heart. Applying this to the heart, this speaks of being unmixed in your heart, unalloyed, undivided. This is where your inner person is free from impurities, refined, this carries the sense of being single-minded, or you might say single-hearted for the Lord. And those who are pure in heart, they don't give their hearts away to another. Their heart belongs entirely to the Lord. And Christ himself later warns against a double-mindedness in the Sermon on the Mount, which reflects an impure heart. You can look at Matthew 6, 24. He says later, you know and can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He cannot serve God in wealth. That can be applied to anything. Wealth, family, retirement, you go down the list. God wants our devotion to him to be pure, unmixed, 24 karat, like the real thing. It's just like he said to his people Israel. This is what he's always wanted from his people. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, the, the, the central verse for Israel as a people. 
God said to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. This is God telling Israel to be pure in heart. They, they must have a single-minded devotion to him. That's what will keep them away from idolatry and a host of other sins. Really, the, the secret to a, a pure, righteous life is, is a deep, true love for God on the inside. It's useful to point out this sixth beatitude is really just an echo of Psalm 24, which we read this morning. Psalm 24 asks in verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in, in his holy place? Who gets to dwell with God? Who gets to be in his presence? That's, that's the million dollar question. And David in the psalm answers in verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Same word for pure in the Greek Old Testament. Only the one devoted to God alone with a supreme love for God on the inside gets to see him. Because the psalmist goes on to say of this person in verse 5, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. These God's people, they, they seek God. They, they want to see him. They want to know him, be known by him. Walk with him like Adam did in the garden. And really Christ, the greater David, echoes King David in declaring that that privilege of, of seeing God belongs to whom? To the pure in heart. They and they alone shall, shall ascend the holy hill. And so off the bat, ask yourself, does that sound like you? By this standard of being pure in heart, do you think you would be granted entrance to the Lord's presence? Do you think you would be allowed to ascend the Lord's holy hill? Would you say your devotion to the Lord is unmixed, unalloyed, unadulterated? Would you say you love the Lord your God with all your heart? Are you pure in heart? Some of you might know for sure the answer is no. In your heart of hearts, you don't really love God. That's evidenced by the role he plays in your life, which is basically none. And you might pay a little bit of the Christian role on a Sunday morning, but otherwise, you know in your heart of hearts, your heart belongs to something else. The rest of you might be unsure. You want to say yes. You, you wish it were true that you actually loved God with all of your heart, but you know you're divided. Who can really say they love God with a pure unmixed devotion all the time. No one. It's like R.C. Sproul used to say often. I mean, who can actually say they love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, even for a whole hour? In a real sense, it actually seems like no one is qualified to ascend the Lord's holy hill and see his face. Who can actually have a pure heart before him? We need to answer this. And so we find, secondly, the problem of purity. The problem of purity. Again, thinking about the organ of the heart in our chest. Since it's so vital in keeping us alive, if anything goes wrong with it, we're in serious trouble. Heart disease can take many forms. High blood pressure, strokes, heart attacks. And together, heart disease is the leading cause of death in the U.S. 655,000 Americans die each year from some heart disease. 
That's one in four deaths in the country. One person every 36 seconds. It's clearly that the biggest physical problem we face is heart disease. And, and again, it's pretty much the same spiritually. Our, our biggest spiritual problem is a, a spiritual heart disease. This condition affects all people from birth. No exceptions. And scripture affirms that in reality, no one is actually pure in heart. No one has this unmixed, unadulterated heart for God. Instead, all are defiled and corrupt on the inside in their nature. Everyone has exchanged the glory of God for some lie. God himself, before the flood, he, he saw this. He saw that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. And look, after the flood, he came to the same conclusion. Genesis 8, 21. He, thought, he saw that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I mean, God judged the world for its wickedness with the flood, but it goes to show you that you can cleanse the world that still does nothing to the human heart. Unless our heart is fixed, all we have waiting is judgment. Jeremiah 79 says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Something's broken with who we are on the inside before God. Let's look to what Jesus himself said about our spiritual heart disease. Just flip over to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, Christ is teaching here in response to an objection that his disciples did not ritually wash their hands before eating. Therefore, they they broke the tradition of the elders. They're unclean. But Christ is going to teach them about the the true nature of impurity before the Lord. Matthew 15, look at verse 17. He says, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. To us, there's nothing more unclean than human waste. But no, Jesus says The real defilement before God is found with what comes out of your mouth. That which stems from your heart, who you are on the inside. We are defiled by our evil thoughts, words, and deeds. And who here is pure? Do you have pure thoughts all the time? Do you only ever speak that which is good and right all of the time? And are your deeds reflecting a perfect righteousness all of the time. <clears throat> we're, we're unclean. But Jesus tells us this all reflects an impure, corrupt heart. Proverbs 20 verse 9, it says, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Who can say that? The right answer is no one. But the thing is, in Christ's own day, there was a group of people who said, We can. We're clean. We're pure. We're not sinners. This was the Pharisees. This was an ultra-religious sect of the Jews. They believed they had pure hearts. Why? 
Because look at their hands. Look how clean their hands are. Look how extreme their devotion is. Look how austere they are. Look how, how many religious rules they follow. Now, look, it is true in a sense that clean hands do reflect a pure heart. You know a good tree by its fruit. But, but the problem is that these scribes and Pharisees were all hypocrites, that they didn't actually have clean hands. And you have to realize everything Christ says here in Matthew 15 and, and much of what he says is directed against these religious leaders, the, the self-righteous hypocrites. He's condemning them for overturning God's word for their tradition. Like he says in verse 7, Matthew 15, he says of them, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so in reality, their hands weren't actually clean. They were wearing some gloves of self-righteousness, but it doesn't actually make you clean or cover anything up. They were just as defiled. Their lives were a facade. It's like visiting a movie set of an old Western town. You kind of walk through and everything looks so real. The saloon, the, the inn, everything looks like, like an actual old West town. But then you kind of peer in the window or you walk inside to realize there's nothing in here. It's unfinished. No one lives here. This is not a real town. It's all for show. And Christ likewise condemned these religious hypocrites. I mentioned this pretty much every beatitude, but it's the undercurrent where Christ is showing the nature of true righteousness. And in so doing, he's going to expose the false righteousness of the Pharisees. So again, Matthew 23, where he pronounces woes on them. They're not blessed. They're the opposite of blessed, which is cursed. And so Matthew 23, 25 He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. But inside, they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Translation, that they're not pure in heart. They don't have clean hands. Like everyone else, they were condemned by spiritual heart disease. It's just that they fooled themselves into thinking they could clean their hearts by following enough rules, by washing their hands enough. In reality, they just hardened their hearts to such a degree that when Christ exposed their sin, even offered them hope, they rejected him. They killed him. But God sees right through us. He sees us exactly as we are on the inside. For you, in mere seconds, you can look at someone and tell if they're clean or dirty on the outside. You see someone who just freshly dressed out of the shower next to a coal miner, fresh from the the mines. You could tell in one second who's clean, who's dirty. It's it's obvious. But which of the two is pure in heart? We have a harder time discerning that. We don't really have eyes to see right away who is pure in heart. We can't so readily see the condition of someone's heart, but God can. He, He sees our inner person just as clearly as you see someone's outer person. 1 Samuel 16, 7, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He sees right through you. 
And when God looks at humanity, what does he see? He sees that there are none good, or none righteous, or none clean, or none pure of heart. This is the problem of purity. As it's been said many, many times, that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so we still are left wondering who may ascend the Lord's hill. Well, let's answer number three, the provision of purity. The provision of purity. From the beginning, when God called Israel to himself, he actually told them what they needed to do if they were to love him with all their hearts. Remember, we said loving God with all your heart, that's the key to to clean hands and a righteous life. He told them how to get there. He just said, Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. What they needed to do was, was cut away the sin in their heart. They just had to refine and remove all the impurity in their heart, and then they would love God with all their heart. Just the problem with that is we actually can't do that by ourselves. Back in 1967, it, it marked the first heart replacement surgery. And it's an extreme procedure. The patient is put into a deep sleep and their chest cavity is literally sawn open. Like with a saw, they're sawn open. At that point, their, their heart is bypassed. All the blood flow to their heart is bypassed into a heart-lung machine. Once that succeeds, the heart is then cut away from their chest and a donor heart is put inside, ensuring all the new blood vessels are reconnected without leaks. Then the heart-lung machine is disconnected and the new heart is shocked to get it beating again. It, it's, a, it's a marvel of modern medicine. One thing, though, should be absolutely clear. You could never do this to yourself. You could never perform heart surgery to yourself. But it's, it's even more impossible to perform spiritual heart surgery on yourself. It's even more impossible to grant yourself a new nature on the inside. Who can change the heart? But God knows this. And in his mercy, at the same time, he promised to do for his people what they could not do for themselves. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he likewise said to them, he said, moreover, the Lord your God, he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. That's how you live, with a clean heart. How do you get it? Well, God will do it for you. He, will, he promises to give it to his people. This is what God promised he would do. And this promise comes to fulfillment in the new covenant. Where God enables his people to love him and obey him by giving them clean, new, pure hearts. It's reflected in Ezekiel 36, 25. God looks forward to this new covenant. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That hardened, dead, spiritually impure heart, he will rip out and replace with one that's alive for him. And Christ himself reiterated this promise in John 3, talking to Nicodemus when he told them that, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. 
You've got to be reborn. You have to be made new on the inside to see God and his kingdom. This is the work God performs by his Holy Spirit. So we wonder like, okay, well, how do we get on the list for this heart transplant? How do we make this happen for us? We're not in control of this. This is the Spirit's work. He moves as he wills. Like Christ says in John 3, it's, that's not our concern. However, the Lord tells us what we must do, what he has placed in our lap to be saved. And it's simply to believe. You must look to Christ, this Savior who has come, the King of glory who has come. You must look to him with a, a humble, repentant faith, and you will live. He will transform you. God promises to always hear the cry of the one who goes to Christ the Savior. It's just like Jesus said later in that same chapter, John 3, the same discourse he says, John three fourteen. he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Speaking of the cross, he says, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so like before, if you answered in your heart of hearts that, that no, you know you don't really love God. You don't really love him above all. You don't really love God at all. Whether you profess Christianity or you play a little bit of the Christian game on a Sunday morning, you know you're not right with him. You can change today. You can be remade, reborn now at the moment of faith. If you would just humble yourself, repent of your sins, look on Christ, the sinless Savior who died to, to pay for your sins, to make you pure. He promises to forgive and to remake those who, who come to him. So if you submit your life to him, you will find an unexplainable, in a sense, change come upon you, this new birth. Your, your likes will change. Your preferences will change. Your beliefs will change. Your values will change, and you'll find springing up within your heart this, this love for God you didn't have before. You can't fake this. You can't hide this. But make no mistake, Jesus said you must be born again. You must. This is the only way to see God. You must be born again. That only happens in him. Only he can make you pure. You must go to him by faith. This is not the end of the matter, though, so long as we live here below, even after coming to faith. You know, a man in his 60s might receive a heart transplant from a young man in his 20s, a a healthy, strong, athletic guy. So now, of a sudden, this, this man has a perfect, healthy, young, strong heart given to him. The problem is it's placed inside his same old body. So if he wants to thrive and not waste his new heart, He better change the way he lives. It's time to start eating right and exercising, managing stress. You've been given a new heart. You want to take advantage of it. You've got a new heart, an old body. You better live right to take care of this new heart. We find yet another spiritual parallel here. So let's move on to number four, the pursuit of purity. The pursuit of purity. So in the moment of salvation, when you come to Christ... We're given new hearts. The Lord supernaturally transforms our inner nature. We come alive, but we retain our bodies. 
So you might say we're, we're new on the inside, old on the outside. We've been made pure on the inside, but we're still corrupt on the outside. God made us two parts, body and, and soul. And this is our condition until we're glorified. And so the result is that now and for the rest of our lives here below, we find that there are two competing sets of desires and interests within us. Those of our new spirit, which is fed by the Holy Spirit, and those of our old flesh. So this is why we say, even as Christians, that we're not yet fully pure in heart. I mean, we are in one sense. God has made us positionally pure in heart in our souls. But we know in another sense, we have the flesh. We're still oftentimes double-minded. The Lord has planted within us a true, genuine love for him. If you know Christ, you should have this experience that in your, your heart of hearts, your deep inner person, you do love God. You, you want to love him more. You, you only wish you could be fully given over to his service and to him. That should be the cry of your heart of hearts. But we have the flesh. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. We're beset with temptations. And so we know we're still divided. We're still mixed. And the apostle Paul famously relates this struggle. It's, it's such a helpful passage of scripture, Romans 7. He says in Romans seven eighteen, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. It says in verse 22, for like I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I mean, in the heart, I love God. I love his word. I want to do everything he says. He says in verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And this just reflects that the real internal battle taking place in all believers between their new heart and their old body. Just like a body might attack a transplanted heart and try and reject it. So our flesh is most certainly attacking the new heart the Lord has played within us, or placed within us, rather. But we must not let it. And so practically speaking, the Lord tells us that if we are to be blessed, we must now pursue purity in our lives. We must live out purity in our lives. See this in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, where it says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. He says, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and then put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. See, the Lord has made you new. You are a new person on the inside if you know Christ. He's made us pure in salvation. Now it's time for you to, to passionately pursue that purity to live it out. Second Corinthians 7, 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, coming to salvation, says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Or walk by the Spirit. And, and practically speaking, the believer's pursuit of purity now has a lot to do with just becoming single-minded. Becoming more single-minded to the Lord. Listen to James 4. I know I'm throwing a lot of verses at you, but purity is a big subject in Scripture. 
James 4.4, 4, he's talking to believers, but he says, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Then he says in verse 5, Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says, He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. James writes, knowing the internal battle believers face, that we love the Lord. I mean, we're betrothed to Christ, but we commit spiritual adultery all the time. We betray our vows to worship him alone all the time. We have wandering eyes looking and lusting after things in the world. And God in this verse is depicted as a jealous spouse with a righteous jealousy for us that the spirit he made to dwell in us, that the new heart, he wants it for himself, gave it to us for himself. He wants us to have eyes for him alone. I mean, isn't that what you want from your spouse? You want their heart to belong to you alone. And so does God. And look, again, we we fall short. We betray our vows all the time. Thankfully, he is forgiving and patient and long-suffering. But goes to show you, first and foremost, our pursuit of purity has to do with just becoming single-minded. And as often as we are mixed, we, we must repent. There's no pursuit of purity without repentance. A continual cleansing is what we need. Like James says later in verse 8 of chapter 4. He says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's what we need to do, though. Your hands, your hearts. Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Only those in Christ. Yet as we walk in the world, we, we get a little dirty. We must go to him for, for cleansing. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God will continually cleanse us and keep us pure, but you must continually shed your sin, your double-mindedness, and realign your life back to the Lord. Maybe you have bad posture like me, and so as you, you walk in the world, your spine goes out of alignment, and maybe you need frequent trips to the chiropractor to realign you that you might walk straight. Well, likewise, we need frequent trips to the good physician of our soul. He, he will realign our hearts to him alone with prayer, with repentance. He's realigning us to that pure devotion to him alone. I need that daily. I, I trust you do as well. And you find that the Lord will then prescribe to us to keep us pure regular doses of his word. Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. The Holy Spirit within us guides us and convicts us and leads us into all in righteousness. And he does so often by the living word he inspired. Our new hearts run off the lifeblood of Christ's word, of the scriptures. And part of the power of God's word to purify us is that it makes its way up to our minds. The word renews our minds. That's what makes us functionally love what God loves. We hate what God hates. We desire what God desires. We, we, we love him. This is how we become pure from the inside out. 
Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Set your mind on these things. Do you want to be pure in heart, inside and out? Then you have to ask, what has captured your mind? What influences you? What do you watch? What do you listen to? Just take the greatest example of the internet. If we all got to take a look at your browsing history, would we find that which is honorable, right, and pure or not? What are you letting into your eyes and ears and filling your mind with? I mean, if the media of the world dominates your thinking, do you expect that to lead you to purity or impurity? Greater love for the Lord or friendship with the world? And look, escaping to a monastery in the desert is not the answer. we, We are called to live in the world, but at the same time, not be of the world. So we are to live as lights while, however, keeping ourselves unstained from the defilements of the world. That's what James says in James 1.28. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. That's mercy. That's the fifth beatitude. He says, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So is this you? Are you pursuing purity, which is a single-minded devotion to the Lord in keeping with his holiness. And I'll tell you what, if you're having a hard time, if you're struggling with the flesh, we can almost guarantee you've been doing it alone, and that's part of your problem. That doesn't work either. That's one of the big problems with the monastery. If you're alone all the time, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Because the Lord tells us to pursue this purity together. You don't have a chance doing it alone. You have to have the right people around you. 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good morals. But 2 Timothy 2.22, it says, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and purity, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is how you keep your ways pure before the Lord. You need to let the purity he placed in your heart come out of you, come out of your hands. We want clean hands. Clean hands and a pure heart are needed to ascend the Lord's holy hill. But one does come from the other. Live pure in heart, free from hypocrisy. Yes, we fall short daily. But the Lord is pleased when his people are pursuing him just from a true love for him that's found in their new heart. One day the Lord will return for us. On that day, he will perfect us. We will be fully pure on the inside and the outside. In fact, just that very thought of his coming to purify his bride should should spur us on to even greater purity, that we might be ready for that day, that we, the church, as his bride, might be found wearing white on the day he comes for us. And speaking of that thought, let's finish with number five, the privilege of purity. The privilege of purity. What does Christ say in this beatitude back in Matthew 5, verse 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That that Jesus would promise such a privilege is stunning because we're told throughout Scripture that 
that no one can see God. You're not allowed to see God. God told Moses, Exodus 33:20, "You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live." First Timothy 6:16 6, says, "God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see." You can barely stare into the sun for a few seconds before you are forced to look away by its intensity and brightness. And you stare any longer, it, it will literally burn your retinas. But scripture tells us that, that the full display of God's glory, it won't just take your vision, that it will take your life. God's glory has to be veiled before even to approach him. And the reason for this is our impurity. We don't have a problem with our eyes that we can't see God. We, we have a problem with our hearts. We are impure. God is not. He's perfectly, intensely holy. We don't belong in his presence. Not any longer, not after the fall. Adam and Eve once saw God. They walked with God in the garden, or at least some veiled representation of his glory. But in sin, that they were immediately cast out of his presence. He hid his face from them. Ever since, the faithful have been seeking him, seeking his face. Like David said in Psalm 24, we seek your face. Like Moses cried out, Exodus 33, 18, I pray, show me your glory. And this privilege will never be given to the impure or the unholy. They'll never see God's glory. But the privilege will be given. Not earned, not deserved, but it will be given. In God's amazing grace, he will dwell with man again. But we've learned more fully now that it's only the pure in heart who will see him. This refers to those whom God has made pure in heart through the new birth. And those who then go on to demonstrate their pure hearts by pursuing purity and having clean hands. They will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14 says it, it commands us to pursue the sanctification. It says, without which no one will see the Lord. In the end, it's those who are given over to Christ and who passionately pursue him, the savior, the treasure. They will be rewarded with the privilege of, of seeing him. Because after all, the glory of God we seek, it's found in Christ. Did not Jesus say, he who has seen me has seen the father. John 14, 9. This word who was God came down, dwelt among us. Word became flesh. We beheld his glory. John 1, 14. That Christ is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, 15. That he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature. Hebrews 1, 3. The glory of God we wish to see, it's found now in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You know, right now, if you know Christ, it can be said in a sense that you see God, not with the eyes of, the he of your head, but with the eyes of your heart, with the eyes of faith, you know him. You believe him. You, you can see and behold his glory. You see him in his word. You see him at work in the world. You see him moving in your life. But now we sim, see as in a mirror dimly, like 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says. In the ancient world, they did not have 
perfect mirrors like we have today. The best they had was polished metal. It only ever gave you a very dim reflection. That's how we see him right now, dimly. But the verse goes on to say that one day we'll see him face to face. I mean, forget a mirror, face to face. Listen to this, this, this last, final, ultimate cross-reference for John 3, 2 through 3. It really sums it up. Where John says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When you look to Christ, you await his return. What mysteries that involves, we, we're yet, we've yet to see, but we just long for his return. That should lead us to pursue his purity now. Again, that we'd be found wearing white when the groom returns for us. But this great promise we gloss over, on that day, he says, we will be like him, we'll be fully conformed to his image. How? John says, because we will see him just as he is. The the, the same God who began our faith will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. What's that going to be like? Who can fully say? But this is our hope, to see him, to know him, to be known by him. And on that day, faith will turn into sight. Prayer will turn into praise. But that day and that privilege only belongs to the pure in heart. And what the Apostle John says here, it's really not far off from the sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. They alone. The scripture itself, the whole Bible ends with this hope. The last two chapters, Revelation 21, 22, we're told of a new heavens and new earth. It says where righteousness dwells, where God dwells with the redeemed. Revelation 21, 27 says nothing unclean will enter that place. Nothing, no one unclean gets in. Only the pure in heart, those who've been made pure by Christ, by faith, enter. Then it says this, Revelation 22, 3 and 4. I guess this is the last cross-reference. But it says, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. They'll see his face. Not once have I been even a little convinced of all the people who claim they've seen heaven. Like not even for a second have I been convinced by all the claims that have been made that someone has seen heaven. Every few years, someone comes around, writes a book, they died, they went to heaven, they came back, and they're going to tell you about their view of heaven. But I've never believed them even for a second. And you know why? One of the main reasons, among many others, but has to do with the fact that after seeing heaven... They go back to living the same life they lived before. Like they, just, they live the same life. The only difference is now they're trying to sell books and profit off their heavenly vision. But that's just a sure sign they did not see heaven. Because if they really did, their life would never be the same. I mean, if, even us as believers, if we were granted just the slightest glimpse of the holiness, purity, and glory of life to come with God, I mean, it would radicalize us way beyond our, our relatively weak faith. Look, there's actually one person who did catch a glimpse of heaven. The Apostle Paul mentions it in 2 Corinthians 12. 
And at the same time, we wonder like, hey, why was this Paul guy so radical with his faith? Why was he just giving up his whole life to serve the Lord, make his name known, pursue purity? Here's one who knew it, it was all real. That the day really is coming when, when the faithful, those who have been made pure in heart, will see God forever. We will by faith be granted entrance into the court of the King of glory. And so let us prepare ourselves for that day now. Let everyone who has this hope fixed on him purify himself just as he is pure. And I pray, as Paul prays in Ephesians 1, that that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's what we have coming. May we live in light of the purity he's placed in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we praise you for your perfect and pure word, which, which I think I speak for all of us. It, it cuts us open like the surgeon's scalpel. It exposes our hearts and lays us bare. The word is living and active. And Lord, I think we need to confess like, like Isaiah, that when we see you, we catch a glimpse of your glory, even from the scriptures. It leads us to turn away and confess we are unclean. We have unclean lips and lives and hearts. We live among an unclean people. We, we don't deserve to be in your presence. We are impure and stand condemned. But this Lord only magnifies the majesty of Christ, the Savior who came for us, the perfect and holy one who became sin for us, that we might be made righteous, be forgiven, even made pure. Thank you for the gospel, the good news of Christ Jesus. May we look on him and believe. May all here look on him, believe and receive new life and a new heart new desires. Lord, that's where we are now. We confess that as well. We know how still mixed we are often, how we can even leave this afternoon and go right back to some other pursuit. But purify our zeal, our passion for you. We know as long as we live in this body, we will fight the flesh. But let us fight. Let us pursue Christ and his purity. Let us live more for your name and your glory until Christ returns. Purify your people, Lord. We know that is the path to being blessed. To your glory, to our blessing, purify us until Christ returns. We pray he returns quickly. Our hope is fixed on, uh, on him, but until then, may we purify ourselves as he is pure. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.